For more information on the fight to fund public schools in PA, visit fundourschoolspa.org. This is Michael Facinetto. He's a fifth grade teacher in Allentown School District. His wife is also a fifth grade teacher in a neighboring wealthier district. Um, as I said, March 11th was our last day, which was actually two days before the, the governor shut down the state on that Friday afternoon. We had a, a positive case in the district and, you know, the, the, the buzzwords then were out of an abundance of caution. We're going to do a deep clean of the entire district. And, you know, I tell everybody this day I left with half a cup of coffee on my desk and I didn't see that cup of coffee for two and a half months or three months till we cleaned up our rooms in June. Um, but we sat idle for several weeks. I mean, within the first week or two when we realized we're not going back anytime soon. And even at that point, after the governor extended the initial two-week shutdown, um, he extended it out again. And we, still then, we all thought, like, we're going to go back. Like, this will be okay. This is just a, you know, a long spring break. And then when it started to set in, um, that when the governor had extended that initial two weeks, even though we still thought we were going back, we realized we have to try and start doing some work. Um, but my students are not computer literate. Even to this day, they're not computer literate. They know the things we've, they're almost robotic. They know the things we've told them to do throughout this virtual school year that we're still in in Allentown, but they don't know beyond that much how to do a lot of things. They have, I have never gotten an email from a student, um, which blows a lot of people's minds. Uh, and it's really, it, it's sad and it's upsetting that we don't use that technology. My classroom had six Chromebooks. Um, I call them old desktops. It was the monitor with a little mini Chromebook hanging on the back of it that functioned as a desktop computer. You know, big screen, keyboards, mouse, the whole nine yards. I had six of those. Um, four of the six worked pretty good, and the other two, it depended on the day and the mood that the computer was in. Uh, we also had a laptop cart that had about 20 laptops. Um, many had various missing keys and things. They just There just wasn't money in the budget to repair them. So you could never really plan good um, instruction with technology. We couldn't do a lot of the fancy things other districts did because we weren't one-to-one. -one. Um, as I said, I had 24 kids and I had maybe 20 devices and maybe 16-ish that had all the keys that really worked good that I could, you know, I can't plan a lesson and then on the fly have five kids without a device. It just doesn't work. So we may, we may do as best we could. Um, and again, this is all pre-pandemic. So our kids just didn't have that experience. They didn't know what to do with technology, which is really, really a shame in 2020 and, you know, years before that. But again, the district challenged financially for many years. Um, and there's just not, there's not the money to go around. And it wasn't just a few select kids whose parents had fallen on hard times. It was the majority of our families did not have internet access, reliable internet access, or then a device beyond a, a tablet or a phone to even do work on. Um, so it was a disaster. By contrast, this is what transitioning to virtual learning looked like for his wife's school. The only real issue with what got her district online compared to mine was funding. It was technology. It was a district that had a fund balance. They had savings in the bank. If they needed 500 Chromebooks, they could order them that day. They didn't have to wait for emergency funding, um, but they didn't need it to because they already were one-to-one. -one. They were a one-to-one -one iPad district for years. Back when iPads were kind of, even before Chromebooks came out, you know, and everybody was going iPads to get away from the laptops, that's where they went. And these kids had them. They were assigned on the first day of school. They take them home at night. They do their work. Like they knew what to do. They were what we would consider nowadays typical kids. They had technology. They knew how to use it. And again, they would be sending emails and messages to Schoology at all hours of the day and asking questions and doing work. And she's planning and preparing just like a regular teacher would under a normal circumstance. And 
I was just sitting there with nothing to do. And it was just a feeling of helplessness and so many emotions um, because it was really, it was the spotlight shining down on this is what funding can do. This is what equitable funding can do. This is the disservice we do, unfortunately, to many of our students of color who reside in these urban districts that don't have the financial means to provide versus these suburban districts that have for a variety of reasons, a lot more money and a lot more stable budgets and the ability to provide these things um, that we didn't have. I'm Meg St. Esprit. I'm a mom and a journalist who writes about parenting and education for Pittsburgh's Public Source, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and more. And I'm Melanie Bavaria. I'm an education journalist who's been covering Philadelphia's public schools for the past several years for outlets like The Notebook, Chalkbeat, Next City, and others. We've spent the last few months interviewing people all over the state to find out the history of school underfunding in Pennsylvania, what it's doing to students, teachers, and families all across the state, and where it all could go, where it needs to go from here. And we're ready to show you what we found. This is Underfunded. Hey, Melanie, it's really good to be here with you today. I'm excited to dig into this topic of school funding in Pennsylvania. It's one I have been really passionate about for a long time. Yeah, thanks. You too, Meg. Um, I've been covering public education for seven years, and it always comes down to funding. That's always the bottom line of the story. Um, and so I think digging into this is a really um, is a way to tell the education story throughout Pennsylvania, um, but probably throughout the country. Absolutely. For me, I really got interested in it when I was a Pennsylvania caseworker for Beaver County. But then through the past five years, reporting on education and parenting for various outlets, but also as a mom of four kids who are going to graduate from Pennsylvania public schools is really when I became heavily invested in the topic. I think it's such an interesting time to be covering education, too, because COVID has really um, laid bare the um, inequities in public education uh, across the country as well as in Pennsylvania. Um, and you see that in this podcast just even from the very beginning, um, the fact that Michael Facinetto had such a different experience just by the fact that his students had no access to Chromebooks or any sort of one-to-one -one, um, laptops. And then how do you transition to a thing like virtual learning when your students have never experienced, um, don't have the kind of tech savvy that other students have. It was, in some ways, COVID, this, the, all of these things pre-existed COVID, um, but the pandemic has really um, just exacerbated, but also sort of shown all of us and pulled the veil away um, for what inequities and in funding really look like in this state. Absolutely. And I know just for my own children, our school was completely unprepared to go virtual. We did not have one-to-one -one devices. And a Chromebook might seem like a small thing to use as a lens to look at schools, but really I think it just is the perfect example of how inequitable things have become in Pennsylvania. School funding in Pennsylvania has always been an issue, and one could argue that we have not adequately ever funded public education in Pennsylvania, but the funding has not always been as bad as it is right now. Here's Boyd Fitzsimmons. He is a biology teacher in the Otto Eldred School District in North Central Pennsylvania. I am an old bugger. I've uh, been around for a long time. Um, I was a student at the institution in high school, and... Uh, then began my teaching career in New York State 
uh, coming back here at about the age of 30 and have been here for, you know, 28 years now. So I have, uh, I guess, had the opportunity to see the courses that have been taken by the state of Pennsylvania and uh, the results in a small rural school over that time span. So Boyd Fitzsimmons started out as only a biology teacher and now has received his emergency certification to teach woodshop as well. That's just a perfect example of how teachers now are expected to be a jack of all trades. They're fighting to keep their planning periods. They're learning to teach subjects they never intended to teach, all in an effort to staff and educate students with less and less resources. To, to begin with, um, when I first began my career here at Ottawa Aldred, I was a biology teacher. Uh, I taught, you know, all of the advanced biology courses. Uh, it might be anatomy and physiology. It might be a course that we called Bio 2. Um, they were sort of geared along the, the lines of a, uh, to coincide with a freshman biology class that was put out by a state school in Pennsylvania. We, we sort of catered that criteria, followed that criteria, uh, as well as the, the, the general biology classes that were taught to uh, all students in, in like ninth grade. Um, <clears throat> I now, well, to, to give you a case in point, last year, my schedule consisted of seventh grade science and wood one, wood two, wood three, wood four. Uh, those are shop classes. I, I had to get an emergency certification. Uh, we could not find a, a shop instructor. Um, and then the advanced biology classes and then one environmental sci class. Um, it was a yeah, it was a, it was a tremendous load as far as preparation went, um, and I'm I'm very positive that I did not do a great job at any one of those, just because it was so diversified and uh, um, there's only so much time in the day. Uh, you 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 can only find so much time to to prepare for classes, um, and I. I even though last year might have been a little bit of an extreme, that's more the norm here than teaching one curriculum only. I was extremely fatigued at the end of the year, and that's unusual for me. I've, I've, I've enjoyed my career um, throughout, and I, I was literally exhausted on, on given days and, and was extremely glad when the year ended last year, not just because of the the COVID intervention, but, but just because of the, the curriculum, the, the various curriculums that I was, was asked to, to cover. 25 years ago, you were hired as an ELA instructor. You were hired as a math instructor. You were hired as a science instructor. Um, now, especially in these small rural schools, you're, you're hired as a jack of all trades to a greater degree than, than ever before. And, and I think that's one of the things that maybe is, is driving uh, younger educators out of the profession. It, it's just on any given year, you're not sure what you're going to be asked to do. 
that also mirrors what Susan Spica has experienced. She's a parent and advocate in Shippensburg, Pennsylvania, in the middle of the state. And she was alarmed by the fact that when she was a student, there was plenty of resources. They had school nurses, librarians, and other things. And now most of the schools do not have, have those resources. So the state is cheap when it comes to funding public education. Across the nation, states would you know, typically fund about half of what it costs to educate students in, in the K through 12 system. And in Pennsylvania, they fund like about 37%. So we rank 44th in the na nation for state share of funding. And so when the state is cheap, that means that there's a lot of pressure on local communities to raise revenue locally to fund their schools. And we all know that there are some communities that have um, very, that are wealthy, and, and in Pennsylvania, the, the local, the way that we fund schools is through property taxes. So a wealthy community that has a very robust local property tax base, so they might have a lot of expensive houses or car dealerships and malls and skyscrapers, business parks that are all paying, you know, warehouses. If, if you have that type of tax base, you can raise your taxes a little bit and you generate a lot of revenue and you can fund your schools at a level where you can give your kids the opportunities they need. But if you live in a community where you don't have a robust lo local tax base, so it might be a rural community that is just spread out over a lot of space and there really is, is nothing to tax other than land and, and homes, or you could live in a community where you have a lot of non-taxable property, so you might have government buildings or churches or other other entities that don't pay taxes as a huge section, a huge portion of your property tax base, and then other communities just simply don't have robust local property tax bases. They they just have homes that might not be worth a lot of money, and so no matter how high property taxes are raised, and no matter how much that community chooses to support at schools, they, they just cannot raise the local dollars that they need to, to fund their schools and give, it, give kids the resources that are necessary. Obviously, things are not ideal in Pennsylvania public schools. This podcast is going to go into the experiences of teachers, parents, and students across the state. But really, the question is, why is it this way? It's clear to me that the classrooms my kids are in today are very different than the ones I grew up in. But why? Pennsylvania has a school funding formula. But many fair funding education advocates believe that this formula doesn't do enough. This is due to a wrinkle in school funding called hold harmless. Hold harmless is really confusing to understand. We asked everyone we talked to to give us a definition, but to be honest, it was even confusing for educators. I asked James Fogarty, who is the executive director of A Plus Schools in Pittsburgh, which is a community advocacy group, to explain just what it is. Sure. Um... So the easiest definition is a state policy that kept districts whole when they started to see exceptional declines in enrollment. And um, it was a policy that's been enacted since the 90s with different variations on it. But what it's meant fundamentally for uh, Pittsburgh has meant that as it's population of school students has declined, its funding has remained the same and has got every year gets a little bit of an increase. So where you have growing districts, and there's about 20% of the districts in the state that have seen kind of significant growth, 
they have not received additional funding as a result of that growth in a way that would be ameliorating the harm that they've had in terms of just not having enough resources. So you see this sort of inequitable pattern where it's mostly Western Pennsylvania districts that have seen populations decline much because of the the loss of the steel industry and then all the attendant industries that served it um, have kind of left the this area of the state with smaller and smaller districts while other parts of the state, more central and eastern, have seen growth in their school systems. This is Dan Jurovic Ecclesberg. He's an attorney with the Public Interest Law Center in Philadelphia and covers a lot of cases dealing with civil rights in the state. He has become really passionate about school funding and gotten to know the issue really well. Here he is explaining Hold Harmless. Hold Harmless, uh, it's hard to describe Hold Harmless in two sentences, but Hold Harmless is the practice by which um, school district funding um, can never go down. It always at least stays the same. Um, And so even when school districts lose population, um, they don't lose funding. And then the other, just to, to the other important thing to note is that because Pennsylvania has a finite pie of school funding that it distributes, right? Because, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, but at some point, um, because Pennsylvania doesn't actually have a goal of adequately funding public schools, what Pennsylvania says is we're only distributing so much money. We're distributing this pie and we're going to divvy it up amongst you. And so if one district doesn't have its funding decrease because it's losing students, then another district who's having its students, its student population increase doesn't gain funding, right? So so the real core of the problem with Hold Harmless isn't that districts hold on to money, it's that because of the zero-sum game that Pennsylvania has set up, districts hold on to money at the expense of other districts. I asked the same thing to Michael Facinetto, the fifth grade teacher from Allentown that we spoke to at the beginning. Instead of talking about the policy aspects of Hold Harmless, he really walked through what it actually means for school districts like Allentown. If you just look at Allentown and you look at a lot of our urban districts, the deck is just stacked against them. It is so hard for them to dig out of their hole um, and really make ends meet because every way they turn, there's something else against them compared to a traditional suburban um, school district an elementary school. Not to mention that if you don't have that, those resources early on in education, then students fall farther behind and then it costs more money to get them up to speed. And then it's just a self-perpetuating cycle, even even beyond the the special ed costs, which certainly are rising. It seems like they're digging themselves holes they can't get out of in multiple ways, um, again, with no fault of their own. But this is something that's a problem across the state, I think, which is really it, interesting. Absolutely. I mean, even statewide, when you look at the fair funding formula that's been in place. And I know you might want to get into that more later, but it's just, you, you have a house and the roof is leaking and you just keep, you know, throwing duct tape on it. And the longer you let it go, now the inside roof needs to be repaired and the ceiling needs to be repaired. And the, you know, the more you let it go, the worse it gets. And that's, we've been doing that for so long. And what could have been a small fix is now an astronomical fix. And like you pointed out, when you know what you need to do to help students in kindergarten and first and second grade and you just don't have the resources to do it and you don't have the ability to help them and give them what they need and they keep moving on, it just gets more and more expensive and it gets more and more difficult because the student is so far behind. You know, if you, if you have a fifth grader who reads on a second grade level, 
people are like, oh my gosh, what are these teachers doing? Like this is this is criminal. They should be fired. But you don't have the resources. You don't have the pull out, the push in and pull out support of multiple special ed teachers to be able to service those kids. You don't have the financial ability to purchase the right programs or provide the right trainings or have any of those things that we know will work to help remediate the student. You just don't have the money for it. So fortunately, um, these students are just, they're falling farther behind and you try everything you can, but there's just nothing left to do at some point. You don't have this, the things to give them that they need. So whether you're talking about whole harmless as a wonky policy or what it actually does to impact schools, the other effect is that it pits schools districts against each other. Here's Susan Spicka talking about just that. And and I have to say, like our state legislature, they understand the power that they have when they can create a school funding Hunger Games, which is exactly what they've done and what has really worked to their benefit for a long time. So they say, well, you know, that you don't have enough money because those kids have too much. And so they're the problem. Those students are the problem because they have too much funding. And they get people and advocates to direct their anger at a school district or at children who they perceive as having, quote, too much. But when we look at the school funding system, we know there are very few school districts that actually even have enough. As you can imagine, this is really dispiriting for both teachers and students. The really fundamental thing that people have to understand is that the Pennsylvania legislature has no goal of fully funding public schools. You know, that is when you actually step back, a crazy thing to think about, that there is no goal of fully funding public schools. In any rational system, if you wanted high quality education, you would start with an end goal. Like, what should a school look like? Or what are the results that we want? And then you'd figure out how to get the resources to get those results, or to get how, a, you know, to, to make a school look like a certain way, right? Every school should have, you know, sufficient counselors and teachers, or every school should have modern facilities, or we want every student to graduate college ready. You'd have these end goals, and then you'd figure out how to fund it. And it could be a mix of state and local funding to do that, right? But you'd actually have a goal of doing it. But in Pennsylvania, there is no goal of fully funding public schools. And so when there's no goal of fully funding public schools, what you're essentially doing is you're saying it's every school district for itself. And when it's every school district for itself, and you are an incredibly economically segregated society, right? When you have you know, mansions on one side of a school district, on, on one side of a school district border, and lots of low income or low wealth communities on the other side of a border, you're going to have huge disparities. And, and so it's just, it's a, it's a crazy system. And we sort of normalized it. But the bottom line is that in Pennsylvania, there is no goal of fully funding public schools. That is a choice that our legislature makes. And it's crazy. So if you think about it, if it means that the state has no goal of adequately funding public education in Pennsylvania, what options are we really left with? A lawsuit. That's basically the only way, or at least that's what advocates across Pennsylvania and the ones that we've spoken to so far uh, really believe, that a lawsuit is the only way to force the state to actually live up to their obligations in educating our children. What does it actually look like to sue the state? That's what we're going to help you understand. 
Underfunded is a project of the Public Interest Law Center with grant support from the William Penn Foundation. For more information on the fight to fund public schools in PA, visit fundourschoolspa.org.